This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kasten-Smith. Uh, if you were with us last week, Sam and I have been going through the story of Gideon from the book of Judges, and we have a bit of a cliffhanger here, Sam. Uh, at, the, at the end of last week, we talked about Gideon and his fleece and how he tested the Lord before he would go, and, uh, and then Sam and I both told our fleece stories, which, I, which if you missed those, hey, those are good stories. You can go back and pick those up from last episode. <laughs> But uh, but we're going to pick it up this week with the Lord's response, which is at the start of, of Judges chapter 7. I love this part, Sam, because I feel like God has something of an ironic sense of humor. Um, mm-hmm. I have to believe, first of all, I think that a lot of the things that we have as people are, that are part of, we, we call it human nature, but I think it reflects God's nature. I mean, we have a ten, we have it within ourselves to to long for justice, to to be merciful, to be kind, to be you know all the good things that we have about us. The desire to be creative, these things I think are things that come from the nature of God that's in us. I think mm-hmm. we've corrupted Absolutely. that, which is where we have selfishness and greed and 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 all the other evil things. We've certainly corrupted that. But I do think that when it comes to the idea of humor, people are like, well, does God, you know, do you think God laughs? I'm like, well, I know God laughs. <laughs> I, I believe, absolutely believe that God has a sense of humor. Um, and I think this is one of those ironic stories because uh, as we wound up last week, uh, Gideon had tested the Lord three times. And now this week, the Lord is going to test Gideon. Yeah. So uh, let's pick up in uh, chapter 7, verse 1. It says, then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, which that's the the Jeroboam name is one that was given to Gideon, which says, let Baal basically fight his own battles. <laughs> <laughs> and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And so just to, just to recap, Israel is being totally oppressed by the Midianites, they're all hiding in caves, and they know that if they grow anything, the Midianites are going to come and tear it down and steal it. So they are living in constant fear. And when you first meet Gideon, he's hiding in a wine press, you know, uh, you know, threshing wheat. And God comes to him, the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, hey, Gideon, valiant warrior, I'm calling on you to deliver your people from the Midianites. And so Gideon's like, ba 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 ba, and and he puts the Lord to all these tests to make sure to to get resolve in himself that the Lord is really behind this. And when you when this starts the story, okay, now Gideon is about to go into having to deliver his people from one hundred and thirty five thousand Midianite soldiers, and now it's go time. Yeah, and the size of the army is already smaller on Israel's side when yeah. when the Lord rings up the Gideon phone and says the Lord says to Gideon chapter 7 verse 2 the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites <laughs> into their hand lest Israel boast over me saying my own hand has saved me now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people saying whoever is fearful and trembling let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead now to get the picture people 
the Israelite army, which is facing the Midianites, like Sam said, about 135,000. The Israelite army, as you're about to find out, was 32,000. So you're already outnumbered so, by 100,000 men. <laughs> so here's the, the mental picture, right? You get to the end. Gideon issues the call to all these different tribes. Send me your troops. And he gets 32,000 that show up, which means he's outnumbered by a factor of more than four to one. <laughs> and you've got to think Gideon is going... Oh, my goodness. This is such a train wreck. I can't believe we didn't get more people. And the Lord breaks in and says, this is too many. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's too many. And he says, I'm going to give you a criteria, Gideon, by which we can send him home. Instead of saying, send everybody home that has six fingers on their left hand and whose nose <laughs> has just one nostril, something where there's likely going to be like one guy in the back that matches it. He says, no, whoever is fearful and trembling, being outnumbered four to one, let him go home. It says now, then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So that's the first thing where, you know, God said, this is God's number one. God number two, he rings the Gideon phone again. He says, the people are still too many. You have to picture at that point that Gideon is just has just soiled himself or something at that point. It's like, oh, Lord. So we've gone from outnumbered four to one to now we're outnumbered, what, 13 and a half to one. The odds are getting better. <laughs> so he says, take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he, Gideon, brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, were 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. So you have to picture this, that 300 of the 10,000 people scooped water up in their hands and kind of drank it, you know, licked it out of their hands, therefore being ready, right? I mean, they they would be ready to fight if something happened. That is the most common interpretation okay either that or god just thinks it's cute the way that dogs lap water and he (laughs) wanted people with him to 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 do that um so and it says the lord said to gideon with the 300 men who lapped i will save you and give the midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home Uh, that is if remember last episode one of the questions that i said i wanted to ask was you know lord why do you work through us you know these broken vessels these weaker vessels kind of thing when you could just have done it dramatically you could have you could have an angel just appear every time something's needed an angel materialized and people go like oh hey the angel of the lord is here again word from god everybody gather around yes angel of the lord tell it no that's not how he chooses to do that he gives us our he gives us his word he he lets us be his agents his hands and his feet in this world and if i don't understand it well that's 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 you know that's god's purview but there are times when you you feel a little outnumbered you know what i mean it's like we feel a little outnumbered sometimes there's a lot more people out there going you guys are idiots than there are people standing next to us going we're really smart um so i I can kind of understand being among the 300 and you're looking around thinking i wish there was about twenty-two thousand more (laughs) (laughs) that'd be really nice (laughs) so we've gone from four to one to 13 and a half to one and now it's 450 to one 
So, <laughs> you know, when you talk about feeling outnumbered, like the odds are stacked against you, how in the world can I ever get out of this? It's comforting to, <laughs> to remember all they needed was the Lord to go with them. 450 um, Midianites for every one yeah, Israelite. Midianites and Amalekites together, yeah. 135,000 going up against 300. It's 450 soldiers for every one. So, I mean, imagine Gideon talking to these soldiers, who, by the way, haven't run away, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Because, I mean, you imagine every soldier's talking to the other one. Okay, you get that 450 over there. <laughs> you know, like, right. It's just, it seems hopeless. Now, I, I do want to point out something because obviously we've had the movie 300, which is a story of the, of the Spartan. Mm-hmm. Army Leonidas, yeah. Leonidas and the Spartans, and how they held off a much larger force. But we need to remind everybody that there was a there was some geographic features <laughs> that helped the the, the three hundred stand up against them. <laughs> that like they were they were forcing them to come down through a pass where it was being constricted by the landscape, and so three hundred men. Did they fight bravely? Was it an amazing? Was it? A, did it make a great movie? I mean, hey, Leonidas kicking the guy into the, that's <laughs> awesome, you know. So I, that's a. It's, but, but in this case, but they, they were, also didn't kill 135,000 soldiers of Xerxes either. They did know? not. Uh, they got overrun in the end. In the end, 300 yeah. didn't win. Uh, but I'm, I, the other thing I'm just saying though is, those, is that the 300 for Gideon were being called to face these guys out basically in the open. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah. you 300 stand over there. I'll be right back with your foes. <laughs> and you're surrounded on all, you know, there's just, yeah. they blot out the sun is what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah, all these all these guys are camping at the base of a valley. Uh, we'll see. So it's, it, it's not looking good. Yeah. <laughs> it's not looking good. So the people took the provisions, it says in verse 8 of chapter 7. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So anybody taking a bet out there, if you're afraid to go down, go down now with your servant, do you think Gideon takes the servant and goes now, or do you think Gideon goes, ah, I'm not afraid. I'm going yeah, yeah. with, yeah. It says, then he went down with Purah, his servant, <laughs> to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, there's a lot of beholds here, and behold, a cake of (laughs) barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Hmm. Which... Uh, you know, okay, several things come to mind reading that story. The first is, um, that was quite a cake of barley bread. <laughs> um, but well, 
it's it's not an accident accident that it's barley bread. That's symbolizing something, obviously. Yeah. So so in the ancient world, barley bread was considered like the commoner bread. Wheat was considered very good. You know, so if you had if you had wheat bread, that was that was considered a luxury. But barley bread was just commoner. It's what you gave to the animals a lot of the times. And so when this guy says, "I dreamed a dream," and this cake of barley bread is tumbling in, the what would have been thought of is like this common stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing really great about it. Um, just it's just barley bread, but it comes in and knocks the whole tent down. Mm-hmm. And so you're thinking, how in the world does some common crumbly barley bread knock down a tent? And Gideon's hearing that and going, I had the same question. You know? <laughs> <laughs> how in the world is this going to happen? But the fact that the Lord not only gave this guy the dream, but we're talking about sovereignty here, right? Gave this guy the dream, then sent Gideon and ordained that Gideon would go to the precise spot to overhear where this guy at the precise time is telling his friend, man, I had this dream where this common bunch of barley bread just, you know, knocked down the whole tent and Gideon's like, that's me. Well, and not just gave his not just gave the guy the dream, but he gave his comrade the interpretation that it was Gideon. So, you know, the Lord was acting sovereignly in several you know, incidents again. It comes in threes. Guy got the dream. Guy got the interpretation, and the Lord led Gideon to the spot where he where he heard it. The yeah. Lord likes to work in threes. He does. He likes he to really work in does. threes. Um, it's, Three and, beholds too. And the, <laughs> you're right. Behold a man. Behold and behold. You're right. So uh, so after Gideon hears this, and I do like this part in verse 15 of chapter seven. It says, "As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped." I like that because I, you know, I feel like you know my natural tendency. If if I was terribly afraid of something, and I suddenly was given some relief over it, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I'm sure that I like when I told my flea story last week about the job. I'm pretty sure that I that I thanked the Lord, you know, a few times for that on the way home. Mm-hmm. But I but I also know that it's like I was like over the moon ecstatic you know what i mean that's like i didn't i didn't fall down and have a full-on you know worship i didn't build any altars i mean i thanked the <laughs> lord i'm sure uh, but but i just i remember this euphoric feeling and, and that kind of stuff and and so i am impressed by the fact that that gideon's response in this when he hears this story being told and the interpretation of it is that he stopped and he worshiped before he did anything else he stopped and he worshiped i like that yeah, and it's also the first time where Gideon is not the only one with the burden of these uh, interpretations. You know, he's hearing it come out of the mouth of another human being, even though it's his enemy. And I think there's some comfort in that to Gideon. You know, he hasn't lost it. He's not like this is now other people are talking. This is coming out of their mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, and even though the Lord has said, this is what's going to happen, Gideon, you know, this is what I want you to do. You know, when it comes out of the mouth of his enemy, which is bizarre, it's at that point that he's that he finds comfort and he worships and he feels confident. And now he's going to go to his camp and say, arise. And it's really bizarre that all the talking of the Lord, all of the assurances, all of the signs lead Gideon going, what about the next one? What about the next one? What about the next one? But when he hears it come out of the mouth of the enemy, he's like, I'm in. <laughs> you know, yeah. And all of a sudden he's confident. Yeah. And that's just, it's interesting. But, yeah. you know, I think we 
we work like that a lot of times. We need to hear it come out of the mouth of somebody near us. Mm-hmm. So he does say, arise, he goes back to the camp of Israel, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Then he does an interesting thing. He divides the 300 men into three companies. So so we're going to say, we've got 300 of you here. We're going to have three companies of 100 each. Put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jar. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon, which is interesting because obviously Gideon's got something in mind. There's a strategy that's going on here. So verse 19, it says, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpet to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Mm. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. The Lord caused so much confusion inside that camp that the Midianites and the Amalekites actually were killing each other. Mm-hmm. So so uh, we're jumping into our imagination. I want you to imagine it's nighttime. It's pitch black. Yeah, mid, middle watch is what? Like that's like that's literally the darkest part of night, right? Yeah. So right. I mean it's going to be it's going to be dark. If there's no moon, it's going to be pitch black. Right. You don't have, you're in a valley so you're not getting any ambient light from any nearby towns or anything like that that would have had their, you know, city set on a hill kind of deal. Normally the watch would be looking for approaching torches, Correct. right? That's why the torches were in the jar, right? Because they were just going to suddenly appear. Okay. And and so when they come, they surround this valley on the different mountain peaks and so you can imagine you're you're on the low point which puts you at a military disadvantage. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that the Midianites thought were their strength is it wasn't just the Midianites. They'd brought the Amalekites and they'd brought other tribes of the east, it said. And so you've got all these people down in this valley who have joined together, who don't know each other, who don't do life together, but there's scores of them. And then all of a sudden, I want you to imagine you're in a dead sleep, pitch black, three o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden you hear throughout this valley and by the way they're surrounding it and so what happens when you shout down into a valley it echoes right it echoes yeah so it's multiplying all of these shouts bouncing around on the walls of this valley and it sounds like from every direction the enemy is coming and you come out and you don't see anything except the entire bowl at which you're at the bottom is surrounded by torches and smashing jars and trumpet blasts and you go running around, and it's so dark, you can't distinguish who that person is. And by the way, even if you could, most of them you don't know <laughs> because <laughs> they've assembled all these different armies. And so you have these 300 men who are around the, the valley, and they watch as in the confusion they just slaughter one another. In their panic, anything that moves is the enemy. They're on every side. You don't know which way they're coming from. And you can imagine... You wake up, you run outside your tent, and somebody's running at you with a sword. You can't make out what's going on. They're the enemy. Yep. And they literally slaughter one another. 
It's a brilliant battle strategy. It is. They certainly would have had people that were on watch, right? They had people mm-hmm. that, that were looking for it. And if an army was going to move at night, they were going to need torches to move at night. And so they would see this, the, the line of torches, the, the, the procession of torches coming toward them. They would know the mm-hmm. army is coming toward them. And this element of surprise and also the trumpet. I mean, so it's cacophony. It's this huge mm-hmm. noise and, and, and like you say, echoing. And then all of a sudden these Trump, these torches just appear out of nowhere. It's like we didn't see them coming and they're here already. <laughs> it's, it is a brilliant battle strategy. And it is also one that I, it just, you have to imagine the complete chaos that was going on there. It would have been terrifying. But one of the things that I love about this, and there's a pattern that develops throughout the scriptures, and this is really powerful um, to me. I love what the Lord does here. You'll see battle strategies that seem utterly insane throughout the Bible again and again. So, for instance, the first one, go back to Jericho, right? The greatest city of the region, and God is bringing these slaves, former slaves and the generation after former slaves, into the promised land. Their first battle is against Jericho. And he says, I've got a great battle strategy. Walk around the city for seven days, once a day, and on the seventh day, go seven times. And then what does he say? Then you blow the trumpets, and all of, all of, every, all of Israel gives a great shout, and what's going to happen? The walls come tumbling down, and I'll give the enemies into your hand. And so... The Lord has taught them when they're coming into the promised land, their first battle, how do they get victory? By shouting. Well, the Hebrew word that's behind shouting is the same word that's sing. You know, if you've walked in Christian circles long enough, you'll remember songs like shout to the Lord, mm-hmm. shout to the north. And well, it's singing. It's, it's Hebrew. It's your shouting is the same as singing. And so what he's saying is when you get around Jericho and you blow the trumpets, I want you to worship with everything you got. I want you to sing and shout and the walls come down. And mm-hmm. here with Gideon, right, you're overwhelmed. You have no chance at victory. You got 300 against 135,000. Sing. I want you to shout with everything you've got and watch me bring the victory. You think of, there's a story with King Jehoshaphat that'll be hundreds of years later where they're just doomed, you know, no chance of winning. And when Jehoshaphat goes out, he sends men ahead of the army to just sing and praise the Lord. And the Lord brings about a victory and all the enemies turn on one another and they end up slaughtering one another. And then when you get to the climax of all scripture, which by the way, we get to participate in this one. When John is describing when Christ returns and makes all things right, I love the way he does this. He says, you know, at that moment, revelation starting to unfold, all the craziness of what's coming on at the, the apocalypse, the end of time is happening. And then if you open your Bibles to Revelation 19, John's describing what this climactic victory looks like. So when Jesus finally brings about the final victory that ushers in permanent peace and, and bliss and heaven for all of us forever, it says, After this I heard what seemed, seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, right? And then there's some more. And then it says, once more, they cried out. And then you scroll down a little bit, and it's the 24 elders and the living creatures fell down and worshiped God, and they're crying out and shouting. And then you get a little bit further, and the the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And you know what happens? 
It's on the praises of his people, the saints in heaven, the saints on earth, when it is just building up to this unbelievable loud chorus of praises coming from heaven and earth. Boom. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And so here's the idea. The scriptures are training us to see that when we get in these battles that seem like they're absolutely unwinnable, Jericho, Gideon, Mm. Jehoshaphat, that when the people shout up their praises to the Lord, he shows up and wins the battle. And that's not just true of military battles. You can be in the most dire situation where you feel like you're 300 against 135,000. <laughs> and there is something about those moments when you just stop and you stop thinking about the circumstance for a moment and you just praise God. You get victory in that moment. You mm-hmm. get peace. You, it's, it's overwhelming. I remember getting the news that my mom had had a heart attack she had a, an, an aneurysm on her ascending aorta mm. and i got news of this when i was teaching and they said you know my brother said are you sitting down and i sat you know sat down and he said you know mom's not likely to make it she's in right now in the emergency room that they've told us prognosis is poor um and so i get in my car and i'm flying <laughs> flying up 95 to get to vero beach where she's at and the whole time I'm breaking down and I'm thinking, am I going to get to see her again? Am I going to get to say goodbye? And in the middle of that, like, and it was almost like the Lord just kind of nudged me. And in the middle of that, I, I was like, God, I'm so grateful that you've given me such a good mom. And I thank you that she has faith. And I trust you. And I trust you. And if you want to take her home to yourself, you know, I will mm-hmm. love you and praise your name. And in the middle of that, I was it was the most bizarre worship experience because I was so overwhelmed with peace and joy in the middle of very real grief Mm. when I'd given it over. And, and you know what, when you praise God, when you shout out to him, even in the situation, especially in the situations where it seems unwinnable, you get victory. Yeah. In that moment you get victory. Yeah. Hmm. (laughs) That's so very true. So in this case, uh, the army uh, fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabath. There we go. I got through that. (laughs) That's pretty good. Yes. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. It says Gideon in verse 24, Gideon sent messengers. I think that's cool. That all of the people who went home because they were afraid, or all the people who knelt at the waters, now all of a sudden God's like, "Okay, go get them," <laughs> you know, <laughs> and now they're all back in it, you know, which is is kind of cool. That's that too is kind of a redemptive picture, you know. God called the three hundred to participate in that, but now that He's assured their victory, it's like, okay, everyone participate, everyone join in, which is kind of cool. So the, uh, he sends the messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of, the, of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb by, at the rock of Oreb. Well, you know, you're going to get killed. Fitting. That's fitting, yeah. <laughs> and Zeb they killed at the wine press of Zeb. That's okay. They then they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. 
That's the kind of thing they did. Just in case you need a reminder that we're in the Old Testament. And then the men (laughs) of Ephraim said to him, we're so thankful that you brought us in on this at the very end and we could shit. No, that's not what they said. The men of Ephraim are not happy with Gideon. (laughs) Then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? Wait, wait. Those were the guys that left, right? They were afraid, and he sent them home. Or was this a different group? So Ephraim is going to be one of the tribes that doesn't initially get a call. Okay, okay. So now they're mad that they don't get the glory for it. Yeah. You 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 invite us to get the leftovers. Why weren't we <laughs> part of the invited to be part of the 300? It's a good question. And they accused him fiercely. And he, this would be Gideon, said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? Um, is there a conflict here that I'm not aware of? He's he's saying, you guys are great. He says, what I've now done in comparison with you. He's saying, but you're so much better than me. So what we have to understand, and this is going to give context to the rest of this story, is Ephraim at this time is where the tabernacle dwells. So oh, at this particular okay. time... You know, the temple will be in Jerusalem in in the tribe of Judah later on. But for right now, Shiloh, which is in the territory of Ephraim, is the place where the tabernacle stayed for more than three centuries. Okay. And so Ephraim is considered one of the the top dogs of the north. And And Abiezer is part of Manasseh, right? Which is the least, as he said, the least of the tribes. Right. That's where Gideon comes from. Right, right. And so he's like, whoa, 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 like you're Ephraim. Of course you're you're special and set apart. Um, and he's comforting them saying, hey, 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 like what I did has no comparison with you. He's basically saying, I acknowledge you're better than, than me. Like, so, so basically what Gideon did is uh, he rolled over and showed them his belly. <laughs> anybody, anybody who has a dog or a cat as a pet will understand what I mean when I say Gideon rolled over and showed them his belly. So Gideon is, he's in addition to showing his belly, you're going to see that Gideon is a little passive aggressive. Yes. Um, When we get to the end of his story, he also is still kind of poking at Ephraim. You'll see. Gideon continues. He says, God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So basically, we're, the, the men of Ephraim were easily flattered and mollified by <laughs> praises to them. Verse 4 of chapter 8, And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zabah and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zabah and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So basically, they're saying, uh, do we want to get involved in this? Isn't this kind of yeah. like your thing, Gideon? Should we really be giving you bread? Have you already want? Is this going to come right. back to haunt us? Yeah, until, <laughs> until your victory is sure, we're not weighing in. We're not helping you. And then Gideon, of course, <laughs> takes, he takes that answer graciously and he says, okay, guys, I could put no. Don't. He does not say, I completely understand. So Gideon said, <laughs> well then, when the Lord has given Zabah and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. So mm. Gideon is no longer showing people his belly. 
Verse 8, and from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So Gideon is making enemies. He's writing checks Mm -hmm. with his mouth that his rear end is going to have to cash later. Um, chapter 8, verse 10, now Zabah and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. That's where we got the number of 135,000 in the army. So still, Gideon still got 300 people with him, and he's now he's cornered the guys that have 15,000 it's still 50 to 1 odds that they're up against at this point. You know, the odds still aren't in their favor. Verse 11, And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbaha? Jogbaha. I'm going to go with Jogbaha. And Jogbaha and attacked <laughs> the army, for the army felt secure. So he's basically saying that those 15,000 people from the Midianites weren't looking for trouble. They thought they were safe. Mm-hmm. And Zebah and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zebah and Zalmunna. And he threw all the army into a panic. So the army got scared and left when their kings got captured. Mm-hmm. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. So basically, he's getting a list of his political enemies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like, he captures this guy, right? He goes, who's, all right, all right, I want a list of everybody that is like the, the officials and elders of your, you tell me who they are. Give me the names. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zabah and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zabah and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And I want to I want to pause here because okay. this shows you, you know, when you first meet Gideon, and this is kind of this is probably the saddest judge because you see two sides of him. You know, at the beginning, when you see Gideon, you see this really faithful guy who's eager for the Lord to move and save Israel, and he's insecure. And But now, you know, he comes across these men who had the same doubts, right? They were like, well, I'm not sure if I want to weigh into this, and, you know, their little trepidation. And he's like, there's no mercy. There's no mercy coming out of Gideon here. Mm. I mean, and so, like, I, I don't know if I can say that what he did was unrighteous, but you see a turn in Gideon's character from being the insecure one to now that I have victory and I have power, man, he becomes really strong. And when it says, you know, round up my political enemies and I'm going to execute them, his son, who is the next judge, who will become a horrible tyrant, learns from him Mm. and is going to put a lot of people to death who are his political enemies. It's interesting that this story opened with uh, the statement that Israel was made small, you know, in mm-hmm. their own eyes. They were humbled, as you were saying, mm-hmm. um, and that Gideon's first arguments were, hey, I'm the, we're the least tribe. I'm the least in my family. We're like the least in the and – the, and when God convinced Gideon finally that he was on his side and that he was going to fight this battle for him, that – Gideon then immediately started fig- figuring that, well, you know, God is like my personal, you know, he's my personal bodyguard. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the, it's kind of like that movie where the, the nerdy kid suddenly becomes friends with the toughest guy in school. And then he brings his friend around with him everywhere and gets all his, mm-hmm. all those that are, that used to persecute him. He gets mm-hmm. the tough guy to, to, to beat him up. 
You know, it's kind of that's kind of what it feels like. But to he, me. it feels like one of the yeah. plots of these movies. You know, and and he forgets who he is. Yeah, he and it, and it's going to have big consequences. So he takes the elders of the city. This is his list of political enemies: the seventy-seven men. He takes the elders of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them, it says, taught the men of Succoth a lesson. Yeah, um, he's whipping them with these thorns and sticks and briars. And then he did even worse with the next place in verse seventeen, and he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Mm-hmm. Then he said to, by the way, folks, if I'm butchering these, if any of you out there are really good on <laughs> Hebrew names and I'm butchering these names, I apologize. I can say Lautenschlager and I can say Kastensmith, <laughs> but I apparently can't do Hebrew uh, names very well. I'm sorry. Uh, so verse 18, then he said to Zabah and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to hmm. Jeth- to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zabah and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. That makes me think back to the thing with hmm. Baal. You know, it's mm-hmm. like when when Gideon tore down the altar of Baal and the city was like telling the father, hey, bring your son out so that we can kill him. And Joash said, hey, let Baal fight his own battles. Let Baal contend for himself. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me of that a little bit. That's a good catch. I think that's intentional. Yeah. So Zabah and Zalmunna said, rise yourself, fall upon us. And Gideon arose and killed Zabah and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels, which would have been signs of their royalty, that he would have been able to show people to say, look, they, they wouldn't have surrendered those if they were still alive. Yeah. So verse 22, then the men of Israel made a mistake. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know if they did or not. But the men yes, of Israel said to did. Gideon, they didn't make a mistake, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. So essentially what they're saying is we want you to be our king. We want, you know, because judges was something where, you know, the spirit of the Lord came upon somebody. It wasn't an office that was handed down to the next son. It wasn't hereditary. It wasn't bloodline. It was totally determined by God's anointing. And so now the people are saying we want you to be king, which would have been in these days when God was considered the king of Israel. This would have been considered nearly blasphemous, Mm -hmm. like when they're coming and saying, you know what, we want you to be king and your son and grandson to be the next kings. And so Gideon knows that's way out of bounds. Hmm. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That is the proper response. But what what's fascinating, and if you know Hebrew, it comes out here. So they're saying, we want a king, and Gideon's saying, no, 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 no. I'm not going to rule over you. My son's not going to rule over you. The Lord is your king. He says the right thing. But then he's going to have a son who shows up right, right in the next chapter, actually by the end of this chapter, and he names his son Abimelech, which is a combination of two Hebrew words, Av, which means father, and Malek, which means king. And so he names his son. No, 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 I won't be your king. But then he names his son, my father is king. And so Gideon is beginning to get hungry for things that only belong to the Lord. Mm. And so he does that with titles. And as you see, when we get to verse 24, which we're about to hit, 
he does it with something else, too. Yeah, and Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. I don't know that it was necessarily a request. (laughs) (laughs) Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. That's interesting. They they were Mm -hmm. Ishmaelites um, because that's like the descendants, obviously, of Ishmael, which you wouldn't Mm -hmm. think of necessarily as being people that would fight with Israel. And, I mean, the Midianites are – Midian was the son of Abraham's other wife after Sarah died. Ketula, I think is her name. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Midian was born there. So, I mean, all these tribes that are in that region share – common ancestries that's interesting so they were basically were fighting against cousins you know Mm -hmm. that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so verse 25 and they answered we will willingly give them and they spread a cloak and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels so that was like a massive haul Mm -hmm. it was yes super super expensive and this is another shot at ephraim by the way but a passive aggressive one and it's definitely a shot against the lord is you know the lord and the law given to moses had described how he wanted priestly garments to be and so he described what a holy ephod would look like and so now you have which is all these precious stones and made of you know you know precious metals and now you have Gideon who's like, I do have one request. <laughs> I would like an ephod to be kept in my city in honor of me. And so what is that? You know, the ephod was supposed to honor God, and now Gideon wants his own personal one. And so that the people worshipped him, and sure enough, they begin to. Ephod was what? It was something worn by the high priest, yeah. right? So it's that it's something. Yeah, the high priest would wear it over the front of him, along like a, as a breastplate, you know, under a breastplate. Mm-hmm. So it was the garment that's put on by the the priest, who's you know the intermediary between man and God. Yeah. Essentially, is what it's saying. And Gideon's saying, "I want one of those." So verse twenty-seven, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. That's a really sad end. Verse 28, so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon, which almost sounds kind of like maybe the story ended, eh, you know, I mean, there's a, they, no, it, it gets worse. Yeah. Jeroboam, this is uh, his his uh, name that he was called, meaning Baal contend for himself, basically, verse 29. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now, Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. So Gideon allowed himself to pursue, right, the pleasures of the flesh, obviously, mm-hmm. withholding nothing from himself. Mm-hmm. Many wives, 70 sons. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. So the 70 sons born by his wives, we're not going to talk about, but the son that was born from his concubine, he named Abimelech. That's not the way it's supposed to go, is it, in terms of descendants? No. So everything about chapter 8, you know, and this is a a powerful warning to us, you know, because you can come to the Lord with a great story and the Lord's faithfulness to you. And I suspect we'll find Gideon in heaven for, you know, I don't doubt that. 
but at the at his beginning, he is such a wonderful character. You know, you sympathize with him. He's the underdog that you're like, yes, Gideon. You know, he's he's doing it. You know, <laughs> it's like God has to put training wheels on his bike so that he learns that he's a valiant warrior. And then he gets a taste of victory, and then it's like, look at me, you know. And it's, it becomes the Gideon show. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make my own ephod, and I'm going to name my kid. Uh, my father is king, and I'm going to bring down merciless wrath upon anybody who's against me and the story of Gideon you're like whoa 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 this guy who I loved who started so humbly the moment he got proud everything blows up Mm. and it doesn't matter how long you're a believer it's like when you come to faith there's a recognition of humility and how you need the Lord you can't ever lose that the the more mature you become as a Christian is is more of a recognition of your neediness, not less. Mm. It's, hmm. it's not like as I grow as a Christian, you know what, I'm, I'm getting the hang of this. I need you less, God. No. <laughs> Becoming more of a Christian is recognizing, oh, my goodness, I really, really need you. Like the Lord, the need for the Lord is amplified, but for Gideon, it was reversed. The moment he got a taste of success, the moment – that he had that victory. And I mean, we'll see this with King David too. The moment that they get all power, man is incapable almost. Or I'll just say incapable, not almost. Man is incapable of hand, handling power. Mm-hmm. It corrupts. And it corrupted Gideon. It's just, it's a tragic end to a very faithful man. And from this point, Gideon is kind of like the, the precipice <laughs> of, of the book of Judges. You know, you start and you're like, Othniel, hey, a good guy. Deborah, all in. She's wonderful. Shamgar, probably. <laughs> Gideon. Gideon has this really wonderful start and then falls off a cliff. And all of the book of Judges from here on out is just a spiral downward until you get to Samson, who's at the bottom of the trash heap. A friend of mine who's also a uh, minister here in our presbytery, John Stevenson, um, posted a quote from C.S. Lewis on Facebook today that I love. It's, a, it's from Prince Caspian. Mm-hmm. And in it, uh, Lucy is speaking to Aslan. Lucy says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan says, that is because you are older, little one, answered he. Huh. Not because you are, Lucy says. Aslan says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. So good. <laughs> so good. That's it. I, mean, I wish I, wish I could it. write like that. <laughs> <I do. laughs> every year you grow older. You will find him bigger. (sighs) Yes. So verse 32 of chapter 8, And Gideon the son of Joash died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abizarites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned... (laughs) (laughs) The people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Yuck. Yeah. I mean, it's like, okay, so as soon as Gideon dies, Israel immediately turns back to Baal worship, and Mm -hmm. on top of everything else... They've got no use for his family anymore. Yeah. I mean, it just shows, you know, Gideon sought at the end to bring all attention to himself. And, I mean, that's fading, you know. 
and 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 bringing all attention to himself you know you kind of wonder if he had done the hard work of pointing and glorifying god and pointing people toward discipleship you know maybe this would have had a different outcome but instead he builds this stupid golden ephod that people started whoring after you know in other words like look at our glory look right. at what we've done and everything unravels again and here the cycle starts all mm. over um and it's a tragic end. I mean, it it really is. But it's it's that cycle of judges where it's like, and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord again, mm. and chased after foreign gods again. Doesn't seem to take long at all. It's it's tragic. We don't really have time, uh, as I look at the clock on the wall, to read through the whole story of what happened with Abimelech. Can you give us kind of a summary of you know kind of? What happened next with Abimelech? Because when we come back with our next episode, I think we're probably going to have to move on to Samson timeline-wise. So what happened with okay. Abimelech? So Abimelech basically becomes a tyrant. You know, he saw the way his dad behaved, and, and, and people are going to be bummed to hear Gideon had a bad ending because we focus on the good part of Gideon, and not a lot of people really study the fact that he had the downside. Um, but Abimelech is going to follow in his footsteps. He's going to murder all of his brothers that are political rivals, He's going to demand that people follow after him when he stands up to go fight. And so he becomes this real tyrant. It says in verse 23 that an evil spirit was sent by God and between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And so they, he comes after them, and he's, going, he's on a mission to kill people in a tower. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. And when he comes against this tower... There's this wonderful woman who's at the top of it, who's defending her people, that takes this millstone, which is one of these massive stones that crushes things over wheat and stuff. Sure. And she shoves it off the side of the tower, and it comes down and smashes Abimelech in the head. And so that reminds us, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how here you have a woman who's crushing the head of the tyrant. So it's another heroic figure that's a female taking out a bad guy. And, you know, he's clinging to life barely, and he says, well, someone, to his armor bearer, will you please kill me so that a woman, you know, it's not said of me that a woman killed me, and he's put to death. Mm -hmm. Um, And so his son does not have um, a very good legacy, but he learned a lot of what he did from his father, and it's so kind of a tragic end. And so when we get to the next major judge um you've got a few minor judges then you've got jephthah um and then we get into samson right after that and and honestly i mean as we look at our our calendar of things and when we're going to need to move over to the first king series which that's going to be coming up in in january um we probably won't have a ton of time to spend on jephthah you know we really got to kind of because there's a lot to talk about with samson um is there something that we feel like that is that's that's significant that we can pull out regarding jephthah at this point or should we should we wait and maybe try to combine that as a prelude to samson does that make better sense we talked about this at the beginning of the judges episode that once you get past Othniel, all the major judges that come before us are there's some kind of a weird flaw that you would never imagine that God would use them. So, for instance, you know, Ehud was left-handed, which was right. seen as cursed in the ancient world, and Deborah was a woman, which would have been an embarrassment in the ancient world. Then you get Gideon, who seems to be a coward hiding, and God comes and calls him. Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. And so he's got this really shameful heritage, but God is going to use him to deliver Israel. But the the thing that makes the story of Jephthah really famous 
is when God says, hey, you're going to be the one, Jephthah makes a vow and says, hey, you know, if you give me victory, when I come home from beating the Ammonites, you know, the first thing that comes out of the gates of the city, I'll sacrifice to you. And so he has the victory. He comes back and he sees his daughter is the first thing that comes, first person uh, that comes out of the gates and, and <laughs> which is, this is wild, but to honor his vow to the Lord, he tells his daughter, I'm going to have to sacrifice you. Which is mm. idiotic, by the way. In the Old Testament, it makes room where it, in Leviticus it says, if you make a rash oath to the Lord that you can't keep, you know, go go and I think it's sacrifice doves, but do not keep a rash oath. And so, if Jephthah had known the scriptures, he would not have followed through with that oath. The Lord would not have wanted him to follow through with that oath. But in this beautiful picture. Jephthah's daughter says, I, you know, basically, like, give me some time to mourn the fact that I'll never be married or have kids, but I will gladly lay down my life to keep the vow you made to the Lord for the saving of Israel. Mm -hmm. And so Jephthah's daughter's this beautiful picture of submissive faith, which is stunning. You know, the story's tragic. Like I said, everything is kind of spiraling down. But Jephthah's daughter emerges as the Christ-like figure. The woman who killed Abimelech by crushing his head is the, you know, the Christ-like figure. It's, it's Deborah and Jael and that story that are the Christ-like figures. There's lots of women that the book of Judges lifts up, and they're the heroic figures. And oftentimes, like Jephthah, who God uses, he's going to be less than wise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, and Gideon, you know, they uh, these men have fatal flaws, but the book raises up all these really wonderful female figures that are heroic, um, which yeah. at that time that the book of Judges was penned, you know, more than a thousand years before Jesus, would have been scandalous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because when you think about the story of Jephthah, you have to realize that his vow was that he said that whatever comes out from the doors of his house to meet him mm -hmm. when he comes back shall be the Lord's and I'll offer it up as an offering. Jephthah was essentially promising God human sacrifice because what did he think that what mm -hmm. his dog was going to come out the door and meet him and then he was going to sacrifice his dog to the Lord? No, he said, he said, whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me. So he was preparing to sacrifice a person. He just didn't think it was going to be his daughter. Um, and, you know, one of the things about that story in Jephthah is that the Lord doesn't speak in any part of that. Mm. It's like, you know, the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and gave him strength to deliver Israel and made him into a mighty warrior. And then after that, there's there's nothing. It's like there's nothing in there with with him saying, hey, you know, I the Lord didn't say that's a good vow. Yes, Jephthah do it. It's like Jephthah was absolutely totally apart from the Lord. This was like, this was not, because I know people are going to think, why did God let that happen? Um, and the answer is, it was a wickedness that God maybe didn't stop. But as you say, it was, the, the story of Jephthah is really the story of his daughter who sacrificed herself for mm -hmm. the nation. Yeah, um, she runs away, goes up into the mountains, could have fled. But comes um, back. But comes back. See, that reminds me so much of Isaac. When Abraham was taking Isaac up on the mountain, you know, and he had he had Isaac carrying the the bundle, you know, mm -hmm. and he's gonna and Isaac's like, hey, who's gonna provide a lamb? Oh, you know, the Lord Himself shall provide a lamb. A prophetic statement. But we've mm -hmm. always talked about the fact that Isaac was a was like a full grown 
young man. You know, it's like, yeah. and Abraham was old. And He's if, old enough to carry the wood. You know, and Isaac could have easily, I think, gotten away from Abraham and run away. But he let his father bind him up and, and put him on the altar. So that he, he had the opportunity to run away also and did not. And the, the daughter of Jephthah had the opportunity to run away and did not. She gave her life for her people. Um, it's a it's a tragic and a horrifying story, but it's it is one that shows that apart from God, this is you know where we can wind up. Yeah, there's um one of the beautiful things in that is she goes to mourn the fact that she'll you know never have kids, she'll never right. have a husband, and that's something you know you don't think about in terms of the sacrifice of Jesus. Um, but in his life of righteousness, that's one of the things that he had to surrender as well. So, I mean, it is. You know, he knows what that's like, you know, never having a wife, never having um, children, at least not physical children here, mm. you know, is something that he had to give up for us. That is interesting. Uh, you're, I, I, I did not think of that connection, but you're right. So the next time that we get together to talk about judges, we're going to try to wrap things up uh, with Samson, who there's many things to say about Samson. Um, and I would say that he is probably the most peculiarly flawed <laughs> of all the judges. Um, but there's a lot that we can see of ourselves in the story of Gideon. Um, we can see that, that the fear that he overcame uh, when he knew the Lord was with him, but also the temptation to, to then let that go to our heads. I mean, that's a, it's a, Gideon's tale is a triumphant tale and a cautionary tale at the same time. Uh, and I think it's something that, that there's a lot of application for us in our, in our modern time here. Amen. Don't let success go to your head. Yeah. Easier said than done. <laughs> hey, are we? Are we? We're going to take off on next week, correct? Correct. That's the schedule, folks. We will be taking a week off uh, in between uh, Christmas and New Year's, so that uh, hopefully everybody has a a wonderful holiday break, um, and then we'll be looking forward to resuming with one more story from Judges. In the meantime, folks, we uh, we hope that you have a very happy, uh, safe, healthy joyous Christmas celebrating the birth of our Savior and a wonderful and happy and and healthy New Year's. Um, everybody, you know, stay indoors, wear your mask, be safe. You know, it's a crazy time out there right now. Um, and, you know, we, we hope that that's that when we come back on the other side, that it's nothing but it's nothing but good memories. If you'd like to correspond with us, you can send us an email. The email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O-Vistachurch.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of Out of Water uh, at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. And you can also find us on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or in our very own Rio Vista Church smartphone app which you can find at an app store near you. Just search for Rio Vista Community Church. We'll be back after the uh, Christmas and New Year's break with the story of Samson. And we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Oh,